The nonprofit MBA purpose is to provide new business insights and fresh creative ideas for executive directors and their teams that will help them improve their organization. Here is your host, Stephen Halasnik. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Halasnik, and I am co-founder and managing partner of Financing Solutions. Financing Solutions is the leading provider of lines of credit to nonprofits. Our line of credit program is easy, fast, inexpensive, and costs nothing until used, making it a great cash backup plan. If you would like to learn more about the program, please visit us at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. And if you decide to apply today, we will even give you a $250 credit on file. Or feel free to give us a call at 862 207 4118. Today, I am excited to be speaking with Robin Cabral from Development Consulting Solutions. Robin Cabral is the fundraising coach and consultant who provides value-added in-term hands-on remote and coaching support with razor-sharp monthly result objection objectives and benchmark deliverables. With her over 25 years of experience, she has raised millions of dollars for small to mid-sized organizations, and she focuses her coaching experiences on the growing people, performance, and purpose model used by Performance Consultants International. She serves as a sounding board, change agent, and extra staff person for those new to fundraising, wanting to excel in their fundraising job or role, or advance in their career. She serves both fundraising professionals and executive directors alike. Of her many awards and accolades, Robin was recently named one of the top 10 LinkedIn Top Voices Philanthropy and Global Development and one of the top 100 charity influencers. Her writing has appeared in Nonprofit Pro, Massachusetts Nonprofit News, Charity Channel, Bloomerang, Donor Search, Nonprofit Experts, Donor Perfect, Nonprofit Learning Library, and many other blogs. Robin, Welcome to today's Nonprofit MBA podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So you're another guest that we have that is in Australia. Now, I know you don't live in Lost in mm. Australia, but uh, maybe you can share with our guests your, the situation that yeah, you're in. Right as now. I was saying, um, I think we all have our COVID story, don't we? Um, I ended up uh, in Australia, I was visiting some friends and family back in December, and I was planning on heading back to the United States in, um, well, actually on March 26 with my flight date. And, uh, and then the pandemic hit and uh, Qantas grounded flights. I believe it was on March 21st, and um, and I've been here pretty much ever since, just trying to sort things out and waiting for the the best time to uh, to come back into the country. Of course, the government had issued um, kind of a stay where you are uh, advisory, um, and so I decided there's no better place to stay than in Oz. <laughs> so so here wow. I am. So like, could you come home with? Could you come you home? Could, if you could. You could. Yes. Yeah. And I'll be. I'll be home. Uh, I'll be uh, coming back in October. So, yeah, it's just been uh, very difficult. 
Um, the borders here are closed both to um, outgoing Australians. It's it's really, um, they're not able to leave the country at this point still. And, um, and there are flight caps coming into the country. So there are only so many flights allowed in per day to Sydney and uh, Brisbane and Perth and so forth. So it's hard to get in and out at the moment, but um, but I will be making my way out. So, so have you been like, uh, you know, have you been conducting business yeah. still in the United States over the phone while you've been yeah, there? Yeah, well, it's been uh, it's been great because um, when I came in December, I was conducting business through Zoom. And so when the coronavirus uh, came onto the scene, I had already transitioned to a more virtual Zoom-like um, environment, a virtual environment. So, um, so yeah, it really didn't impact me tremendously from how I had already um, moved my operations to a more remote uh, virtual uh, sphere. So I felt lucky. <laughs> I had a little practice beforehand, yeah. before um, before the before the world yeah. did. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, anyway, we we certainly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so today's podcast, and you know, whenever I do these podcasts, um, a lot of times a a topic will be something maybe that's on my mind or something that that I think someone has expertise in. I'm like, oh, that's perfect. That's a good thing to talk about. And I really felt that way about the topic that we're going to talk today, which is key fundraising metrics that a nonprofit executive director should know about and measure. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why. Um, so I've been lucky enough to start a number of companies and, you know, I have uh, uh, financing solutions and, and, uh, and another one right now. But you know, I had a business coach when I first started 25 years ago. Um, I had a business coach for 10 years. And not that I wasn't a proponent of this to begin with, but I think one of the things that that I really would often zero in on with her that she really wanted to see, my business coach, was uh, a dashboard, so to speak, of key performance indicators or really key numbers that we would go over every month. And that um, that never went away from me. You know, I always still do that. I have a certain amount of key metrics that I look at on a common basis. And so when, you know, when we, you and I talked about this topic of key fund fundraising metrics, um, I, I thought it was something that was really valuable to the executive directors and their staff out there. So, so tell me a little bit about what you think uh, about key fundraising. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, key fundraising metrics. Tell me why you think you're. I mean, why you're passionate about it. Why you think it's a good idea. The the you know what you've seen changed in a, in organizations that you've gone into that uh, started tracking these things much right, closer. Right. Well, I, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because I am in Australia and. Um, one of the things that I've noticed as a difference between smaller not-for-profits in Australia and the United States is the emphasis on being data-driven. So a lot of my clients in the U.S., small to medium size, um, are just holding or just doing their fundraising um, and not really stopping and saying, well, what are the key metrics, right, that we should be keeping our eye on? And, um, you know, I do a lot of um, 
looking at things like uh, digital lead acquisition and digital fundraising. And that is so data-driven. And I often stop and say to a group, well, the first question I ask is, do you know how many hits on your website you have every month? And the first response is, I have no idea. And I said, well, you have, you have no yeah. idea. So how do you even know how many you're converting into signing up for your newsletter or downloading a piece of content or any of that? So um, by not looking at metrics, um, these groups are really operating at a disadvantage because they're really not operating at a high-performing level because they're not analyzing how they're doing according to their baseline, what's working, what's not working, what they should ultimately invest more resources in and or not, what should they stop doing. So, um, so yeah, I truly believe that those organizations that become, you know, a bit more data-driven in their approach tend to raise more money and have uh, better donor relationships that are longer term and more sustainable. So at least having a basic dashboard. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's like, and it's so, you know, it relates so much to the for-profit uh, uh, businesses. Um, you know, you, you really, in a for-profit businesses, you have to understand your cost of acquisition. What does it cost you to acquire a client? And then how much do you make from that client? And the reason why the first part is so critical, the cost of acquisition, is because you need to know what's working and what's not right, working. Right. And uh, you know, and I and I and I think a lot of businesses, uh, um, and I, I'll speak to the businesses because I think Robin, you know more about the nonprofits. A lot of businesses don't know that figure. You know what's what's working. They just say, "Well, our company is making money, and that's good enough." But they don't know that the cost of acquisition for this one marketing program was $12,000 per acquisition of a client. And this other one was $1,000. And they just don't know that that really right. occurs. So I can definitely see when it comes to a nonprofit, where measuring those type of things is so right. valuable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I may be stoned for saying this, but um, I have been looking a lot lately at for-profit business practices and how do they transfer over. And um, you know, in most cases, many of them do. The problem is, is I think we wear this lens that says, I'm a not-for-profit. How dare I even look at the for-profit sphere towards, um, towards good business practices? So absolutely, I'm a business owner. I'm running a not-for-profit consultancy. And if I'm not looking at things like my social media ad spend, you know, what's working, what's not working, um, daily, on a daily basis, um, shame on me, right? So, um, so I have key metrics and uh, dashboards that I'm looking at to see how my efforts are are trending as well. And so, yeah, it really is, you know, a call to not-for-profit organizations to at least look at their for-profit partners and say, what's working for them, you know, and what should I be doing to enhance my organization's performance, particularly in the day and age of COVID where things now have all of a sudden become very competitive for funding dollars um, and so forth. You know, so, so many groups are struggling to financially 
make it out of this time? So how can metrics play a part in them becoming um, much more efficient and cost effective um, during during this uh, during this pandemic? So, Robin, give me a typical scenario where you know why would somebody. Uh, bring you yeah, on board. that's a great question. So, you know, I do, I tend to do a lot more these days of coaching of executive directors. So, you know, why does someone bring me on board in that capacity? Well, you know, it's really about um, having someone with the expertise and the professional level and credentials and certification and education behind them. But also why I find that um, executive directors and organizations are bringing someone like myself on are to provide that expertise, but also hold them accountable. So what I hear is, is that, um, oh, it's so great to have someone, you know, knowing that I'm going to speak to them in two weeks hold me accountable to continue to move things forward in a, in a concrete way. Um, the other reason that I get hired is because um, development programs have stalled. Uh, things have always been done the way that they have been done. And this is where metrics come into place. They have no kind of a thought around what their baseline or what their baseline metrics are and or where areas for improvement. So I often come in and do fundraising assessments to get an understanding of where groups are, where their room for growth is, and then putting a plan of action to move into that group uh, growth into the future. So those are two reasons why why that happens. And then and then once you get in the door, what is the most typical for for you know, what you often see yeah. that you're that you know, what are you looking for? What do you say? Well, you know, the first thing is, and this this applies to the metrics piece, is um, database, right? For some of these small not-for-profit organizations, number one, do they have one, right? And then number two, how are they using it? Because that really is the driver or the brain behind your fundraising program. And that's what houses the data that you'll ultimately analyze. So that's a real strong starting point around, number one, do you have one other than what, you know, some folks will say, well, yeah, we have Excel spreadsheets. And I say, that's great, but Excel spreadsheets aren't a database or a CRM system. So really looking at what do they have and and how are they using it um, is absolutely critical. Yeah. I mean, how many organizations do you really go into that, I mean, if honestly have the infrastructure that you're looking yeah, for? Yeah, well, not a, not, not a lot, not a ton. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of what I do is assessing the infrastructure and then helping them put a plan into place for that, for that infrastructure. Yeah. So um, do you find that the, uh, now are you usually, are you, are you ever brought on by a board because they felt the executive director really needs some some support? That's interesting. I've often been sought out by boards of directors for um, fundraising assessments where they didn't feel as if fundraising was op- operating um, efficiently or effectively. Um, I often get executive directors who reach out and say, 
you know, this is not my area of expertise. Um, I, you know, I'm responsible to the board. I have to show performance. So please help me to, uh, to reach into my potential. So that's what I see a lot of. Mm. So now with COVID, um, what are you seeing? What am I seeing? Well, I'm seeing a couple of things, right? So I've seen a lot of groups who, number one, pulled back because they could. They could conserve on operations. So a lot of performing arts groups have gone into what I call conservation mode. Um, so I've seen them pull back on performances and staffing if they can, if they're small community-based organizations. Um, I've also seen in the last, and this could be just me from a distance, right? There's, there's a song from a distance, but, you know, being in Australia, I just feel undercurrents. And so perhaps it's me and perhaps you can validate this a little bit because you're dealing with lines of credits and such. But I think since the, is it the PPP program, the payroll protection program, um, I, I have seen um, or have felt uh, an undercurrent of a reemergence of financial strain on organizations. And perhaps that's because the PPP programs have ended or are ending. Perhaps I'm just making a yep. guess. That's and now yep. that stopgap measure yep. for many of those groups um, is no longer there as to the extent it was, let's say, maybe two months ago. Um, so I'm starting to feel a little bit of that, like these financial gaps that groups um, were, were worried about um, are resurfacing. The other thing that I'm, I'm sensing a lot of is that while communities have opened up, they have not opened up to the extent that we thought they were going to perhaps maybe three or four or five months ago. And so groups like YMCAs that depend upon childcare for some of their revenues, they're being hit in different ways because, you know, because of this remote schooling in some communities, parents are not putting their children in child, in, you know, in childcare programs. Um, program participants are fearful about coming in person to engage in programming because of catching the virus, even though their communities may say that it's okay to do that socially distance. So the perception around, geez, should I go in for that kind of programming? Or maybe I'll just, you know, wait a couple of months until this settles. I think that's having an impact on not-for-profits who were hoping that those kinds of things or those perceptual things had changed. So I don't know what you're sensing, but that those are the kinds of undercurrents that I'm feeling here in Australia. And I'm also feeling a sense of groups who are pulling back their investments in fundraising. So whether it's fundraising consultative support or training budgets are maybe being reduced to some extent, but I'm feeling this general tightening of organizations as the pandemic continues um, along um, with really no end in sight as to when it's going to end. Now, I will say this, I'm also seeing some growth in the grant seeking area, whether that's because organizations are feeling as if that's a source of money that is readily available because foundations have 
um, pushed a lot of money towards um, COVID relief, um, COVID relief efforts. Um, I'm, I'm not certain, but these are the kinds of trends that at least I'm noticing from my, uh, from my distant location down under here. And I, I don't know if you concur or what you're feeling as well. Well, yeah, you know what? I had a, a really good guest on uh, for a nonprofit MBA, and I'm, I'm trying to think of his name right now. And, um, you know, he, he kind of summed up what I thought was um, was was really good. He said that um, there are three things that people go through right now they're go- that everyone's going through right now. And the first, you know, when there's a crisis, any type of crisis, the first one is, is you go through triage. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and that is, you know, think of triage when it, like it's an emergency room where it's like you're trying to stabilize everything and you just, you know, want to stabilize everything you want to, you know, in this case, maybe you applied for PPP grants and, and maybe you applied for uh, other type of grants, uh, a disaster recovery from the government or whatever stuff. And then, you know, and maybe you had to let some staff go, maybe you cut your expenses back and then you maybe, you know, you say, okay, we're not going to, we're going to stop our, the work that we're doing with our, some of our consultants. But then after you get through your triage and then things stabilize, then you kind of start planning again. And, and then the, the last part about is then you, you learn from your plan, uh, you're, you're executing it and then you replan mm-hmm. again. And, you know, I thought I, I, what I've seen right now is like people are starting to come out of the triage phase or they're out of the triage phase and they're back into the planning phase. And I think after, you know, Labor Day in the United States, you know, it's a perfect break for people to say, okay, let's you know, bear down now. Now we're past the triage phase. We've cut the programs that we needed to. We cut the expenses we needed. Um, we, we, you know, unfortunately right-sized or whatever. And now, and now with the PPP money running out, um, that now they're looking at, okay, I think, I think the big focus right now for many nonprofits is how do I get more grants? How do I get more fundraising? How can we ramp Mm -hmm. that up? And that's where I kind of think consultants like yourself, um, are going to start seeing more clients from that. So that's kind of what mm-hmm. I'm seeing. Yeah, that is interesting. I like how you package that with the triage, the stabilize, and the planning, because you remind me that when this first happened, the best way that I described myself was as a, a, a fundraising triage doctor, that I felt as if, you know, literally people or my coaching clients were presenting to me as if I was an emergency room doctor, right? Like, what do I do? Help me. This is my situation. So it's interesting that you say that. Um, I am so curious to see you know, what's going to happen calendar year end during one of our most philanthropic times of the year. You know, I say to people, my crystal ball broke about six months ago (laughs) and I have no idea what to expect, but with an election on top of a pandemic um, and, you know, unprecedented times, um, I'm just wondering what the general economic uh, and the general economic sentiment, how that's going to bear on philanthropic giving in the fourth quarter. Um, so that shall be interesting to see in terms of that planning piece that you talk about, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, I don't know, you know, there's money out there. 
people are spending money, you know, you know, I mean, now I do, I think that they're spending it in the nonprofits. I know I, I mean, I personally have, I really updated, I mean, put a lot more money into the nonprofits I care about, you know, that uh, means a lot to my family because I know they need the money. So, you know, I feel like if you can make the case um, and really push hard on it, I, I think people are, are, are really understanding right now. Right. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I, you know, whether this is right or wrong, I say to groups, this is probably the one time that you can talk about your need, right? Usually we talk about the client's needs and, you know, talk about your need in a way that does resonate about the clients. You know, many of the groups have faced significant financial uh, shortfalls with canceled events and uh, other things that didn't go on as scheduled and talking about how that impacts those that you serve, you know, for instance, we may have to cut back on programming um, that has positively impacted our community in such a way in the past. And so, geez, dear donor, we really need you to step up today to help prevent that from happening. But I think, like I said, we all have our COVID story and donors are no different. We're all impacted in this together. Donors understand and they want to make a difference. They want to help out and have some sense of uh, power and control over this virus, right? That's partly, we've all felt so helpless during this. And I think this is one yeah. way of really helping um, to make a difference and to take control of the situation by helping out others. So I, I, th I think it, it is, you're right, it is a very positive, it can be a positive and um, catalyzing moment in, in speaking to our donors, right? Yeah, you know, you know I know you mentioned before, like, for-profit businesses, uh, you know, the way they're run um, is not looked favorably in the nonprofit sector. Um you know, but I, I will mention this, you know, like over the 25 years, I've been through three major recessions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned um, is one of the things that can really motivate uh, you, yourself and your team is to say to yourself, when this is over, what do I want my organization to look like? Mm. And... And work from that because it's, it's very motivating when you say in a year from now, when this is over or in two years from now, when it's, when this is over, you know, what do I want to say that we use this time valuably mm -hmm. for? I mean, that's of course, once you get past the triage yeah, phase, right. right? I mean, if you are still trying to survive and put the fire out, you can't get into the next right, step. Right. right. Um, but that was one thing that I think that is very motivating that I found through past recessions, you know, once you get past the triage phase is then say is, okay, all right, now the plan is now what's the plan and what do I want to see a year from now? How can I motivate our team to move into this right. direction? Um, what do you Absolutely. think about that? Absolutely. I've been saying from right from the start, what's the opportunity in all of this, right? And getting back to those metrics, it's a good moment, to, like you say, you move from triage to stabilization to planning to really look at what has worked in the past. And number, number one, there are certain things that are just not working now. 
But can we eliminate those things that weren't cost-efficient, cost-effective, or producing a return, whether monetary or non-monetarily? And then what are the opportunities in this pandemic? Because for me, I have seen opportunities that have arose for many of my clients to do and think things to do things and think things differently than they ever have before. And so the question begs itself, what are you going to take into the future to enhance your operations? Because there are certainly things and ways of operating that folks will want to take into the future. I think, you know, just these virtual, I'm not a fan of special events because they're not the most cost-efficient cost efficient ways of doing things, of raising money. But you look at many of these virtual events, and for the first time, a lot of these organizations have now opened themselves up to people on a regional on a statewide, on a national, even an international level, who can now tune into their program, no matter where they are, and learn about who they are, and participate in what they're doing. So for me, there has been so much potential in the forced, what I call the forced thinking out of the box, right? That this pandemic has caused us all to say, even us business owners to say, okay, we have to think out of the box really quickly here. And so how are we going to innovate? Um, but then again, yet yeah, you still have to have metrics in place to constantly evaluate those innovations and determine both today and into the future, did this work? What could we tweak to make this better or differently? Um, and, uh, and what should we continue and or not? So, yeah, I think it's been a moment of you know, real opportunity and real, uh, an entrepreneurial spirit in the not-for-profit sector. Again, going back to those business, uh, for-profit business um, uh, thoughts that we should be looking at. So yes, absolutely. You know, um, and bringing it back to kind of our subject matter too, which was about key fundraising metrics, well, you know, what would you suggest to the nonprofits that are out there? You know, what are the things, what, the, what are the metrics that they should be measuring on a consistent basis? Yeah, there are four metrics that I say are absolutely critical to uh, a healthy and effective uh, nonprofit organization. The first one, of course, is the one that we all tend to look at in the sector, and that's uh, donor retention rates. So really, um, you know, I think the the national donor retention rate at the moment is somewhere in the area of around 48%. So I say, you know, would you go into Starbucks and um, Starbucks was losing over half of their customers? Um, it probably wouldn't be... Uh, certainly uh, Starbucks CEOs or shareholders wouldn't be happy about that, right? So um, how many donors are we keeping? And then the other key metric that I look at on the converse is how many new donors are we acquiring? Because what we do know is that just by natural attrition, our donor bases are eroding at the point of somewhere between 10 to 15% per year, just by the fact that donors are choosing 
uh, not to give, that's retention, uh, moving and or passing away, dying, right? So we are losing donors um, at that rate. Compound that with the 48% retention rate, and you can see that if we're not doing something about retention and acquisition, we have a slowly dying fundraising program. On top of that, I also look at the um, gift upgrades. So if your program, if your fundraising program is not moving people or donors up the giving pyramid, you are going to remain static. Your development program is not going to continue to grow. Um, and then the other key metric that I, I look at is the number of gifts per year. So that demonstrates to me that you're developing donor loyalty and donor commitment within your fundraising base by the number of gifts that donors are making. So if you have a lot of one-time or first-time gifts, but you're not converting those folks into um, longer-term, more loyal and committed and sustainable donors, you know, I would question and say, you know, what's your retention rate? You know, how well are you keeping your donors? How well are you stewarding them? All that donor care, all those donor care kinds of strategies. So those are the four key metrics that I look at. Of course, there are other ones. I'm keenly interested in these days in digital donor acquisition because I think it's a low-cost method of acquiring new donors. So I'm looking at, you know, your Google Analytics. I'm looking at your conversion rates. I'm looking at how your welcome series is performing with um, each of the emails within that series, open rate, click rates, all those kinds of things. But I think the four main ones are a great start for any small to medium-sized not-for-profit to be keeping their eye on. Do you think it's um, unusual for someone to bring you on board and pay you what you what you what your fees are, and not get a um, a positive you know get a um, to for the program that that you're implementing? Let's say this is in the case of fundraising. Um, is it unusual for them to not? you know, more than cover the cost of what what they cost to bring yeah, you Yeah, well, you hope so, right? I mean, in certain cases, when you're doing planning, the costs are certainly going to be in the longer term. I mean, the revenue generation will be in the longer term yeah. with a plan that is geared towards um, sustainable growth. Um, now, you know, a lot of the organizations that I coach, you know, we are expected to you know, help them to achieve uh, revenue increases. Hey, the pure fact is, you know, when I was uh, back in the United States and doing interim development staffing, you know, and even with our grant writing clients today, I say, you know, people do not hire us to, to maintain the status quo. They, they hire yeah. us yeah. to jumpstart their fundraising efforts in a way that, um, but hiring staff and or um, doing it themselves is not going to accrue the same benefit, right? So they're really looking for results within their development program if they hire outside consultative services. So I often say con consulting yeah. isn't for everyone because you have to be able to come in 
and assess a program very, very quickly, put a plan together that leverages um, folks, uh, key leverage areas that you can have an impact in rather quickly and, uh, and, and be able to produce within a few months a worth of time to be able to, um, to say that this was a worthy acquisition. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, even when like you leave an assignment, I, I, you know, I guess the organization needs to execute on what the plan was about. Right. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. And that's where it gets tricky because, you know, I like to wrap in coaching, at least coaching services into all of my assessments and plans, because what ends up happening is, is that the plans become what I call credenza wear. They end up sitting on a shelf somewhere and the group never implements them. So I always try to implement, you know, three months worth of coaching on the back end of a plan completion to ensure that I can at least hold them accountable to getting some um, measures in place in order for them to move forward. So I think coaching is an integral piece of the planning and so forth. Yeah. Cool. Well, it's all good stuff. Really good information. Um, you know, I love doing these uh, nonprofit MBA podcasts. I think, you know, we get a lot of listeners too. I mean, we're, we're, you know, way over, uh, you know, three or 4,000 now. And, um, you know, and that's a month. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, it keeps mm-hmm. growing and growing 25%. So, you know, they're so helpful when we bring, you know, really experts like you on and, you know, and it doesn't cost them anything to listen. So, um, you know, I, I really appreciate you coming on board. So I, you know, I'd like to thank you, Robin from, um, Robin Cabral from Development Consulting Solutions from coming on today's podcast. If you, if you like today's podcast, Please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. If you liked today's podcast, please give us a review on your podcasting app to help us get the word out. And of course, if you're looking for a line of credit for your nonprofit, you can call us at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at www.nonprofitmbapodcast.com. Robin, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how would they well, reach you? I think the best way these days is on the web, right? So um, you can find me at uh, www. I don't even know if we say the www's anymore, do we? Developmentconsultingsolutions.com. That's developmentconsultingsolutions.com. It's a long one, um, but that's where you can find me these days. And uh, that's where all my contact information is. Conversely, I'm also big, I think we may have connected or, or, or maybe not on LinkedIn. And uh, actually, you can find me there as fundraising, coaching and consulting. That is actually my LinkedIn name, because you can change your your LinkedIn URL to have a vanity one. So mine is actually fundraising, coaching and consulting. So that's where you can find me alternatively. So, Robin, I, you know, on behalf of everyone here, um, you know, we all hope that you get a safe flight back and you come back soon. Yeah, as well. well, thank you. I'm sure I will. And, and this pandemic will, this too <laughs> shall pass, just like everything else, right? Yes. 
And to our listeners out there, um, I think many people out there are finding it's a very difficult time. And but you know, I'd like to th- uh, say to all the nonprofit organizations out there that thank you for making the world a better place. We all need to do our part, and um, we're we're all mindful that nonprofits have a huge impact on everyone's lives. So thank you very much for doing what you're doing. Have a great day, everybody and stay safe.